I'm not a fool, Pliskin. Call me Snake. S.D. Pliskin. American, Lieutenant, Special Forces Unit, Black Light. Two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. Youngest men to be decorated by the President. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. I'm ready to kick your ass out of the world, war hero. Who are you? Hauk. Police Commissioner. Bob Hauk. Special Forces Unit, Texas Thunder. We heard of you, too, Pliskin. Why are we talking? I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you've committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in. Find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? I'm thinking about it. Think hard. Why me? You flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. You know how to get in quiet. You're all I've got. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. Give me the paper. When you come out? Before. I told you I wasn't a fool, Pliskin. Call me Snake. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted a punch moving in its face more than I have last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Effect Podcast, where we give movies the full effect deep dive for the Film Effect Archive. We hope everyone's having a good holiday season as we enter the final month of the calendar year. That all said, we've got a handful of solid films we're covering this month, beginning with one that we're both pretty excited to talk about today. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Nineteen eighty-eight. The crime rate in the United States rises four hundred percent. Nineteen ninety-one. The United States police force is formed. Nineteen ninety-seven. New York City is a walled maximum security prison. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Kurt Russell. 
Lee Van Cleef. Ernest Borgnine. Donald Pleasance. Isaac Hayes. Season Hubley. Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. And Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The ultimate adventure of escape and survival. An escape from New York when the U.S. president crashes into a futuristic version of 1997 Manhattan, now a giant maximum security prison, a convicted bank robber is sent in to rescue him. Everything John Carpenter touched from the late 70s to the end of the 80s turned to gold, especially that period from Halloween to Christine when he was just on top of the horror world. And during that period, he made a little-known action film called Escape from New York with Kurt Russell. And after the success of that film, Carpenter, uh, I'm sorry, Russell was on board for a couple more Carpenter flicks that would go on to be some of his biggest titles in The Thing. And of course, 1985's Big Trouble in Little China back to Escape from New York. Not only is it an action classic, but the supporting cast is massive. On paper, we've got Kurt Russell, the legendary Lee Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine, Tom Atkins, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Harry Dean Stanton, Frank Doubleday, Buck Flower, Jamie Lee Curtis, and of course, former guest of the Film Effect podcast, the beautiful Adrian Barbo. Now that's a cast big enough to knock you on your ass, but with Escape... You've also got this unique plot that drives the film to act out like a video game of sorts as Snake Plissken is tasked to move around and encounter various areas as well as different level boss types as he makes his way closer to the president, who of course is being held captive by the big boss of the movie and Isaac Hayes. But yeah, I know we got a lot to talk about, but I want to turn the conversation to you, Corey, and see what your initial thoughts are on Escape from New York. Yeah, it's funny that you said video game because that's one of the first things that pops into my head now. Uh, you know, especially after Metal Gear Solid, because literally, you know, like the character Snake from Metal Gear Solid is ripped from this movie. <laughs> so it's just funny, yeah. like, because it is so much like a video game, and a lot of that is just the creator. Um, I think his name is Hideo Kojima, just basically ripped Snake and just put him in a video game, um, the Metal Gear series. So it is kind of funny. Like, I have trouble separating those two, even though obviously this came first, like uh, right. Escape from New York. But yeah, the, those two are just tied together so much. Uh, and yeah, it's just like Snake Plissken. He's just like one of the coolest characters. Like, just the name, like, without even seeing Kurt Russell or knowing anything, like, you just hear the it name is a Snake Plissken. Name. It's just the cool name. Like, you know, you're in for a cool time. So uh, yeah, I, I just like how you drew that uh, parallel. But yeah, I mean, this is a great movie i mean it you know it's definitely got like that 80s or late 70s exploitation low budget action movie feel but you know it's elevated by who's involved obviously like you said john carpenter and just the cast i mean the cast is spectacular yeah so cast is uh, awesome you know it's definitely low budget but it's lifted up by those two things so yeah yeah i'm looking forward to talking about it yeah carpenter did what he could with the budget which we'll get into a little bit later um but 
on top of that, like, I, you know, it came out in '81, but it feels like a '70s movie. Yeah, it um, does. It, 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 the aesthetic, as you mentioned, it's just you're, you were spot on. And you know, I we both mentioned the, the massive cast that it has. You know, and and just everything from the music to the the way it was shot and all these things that we're going to get into in this episode. Um, there's just so many ingredients that we throw into the pot to just you know concoct this delicious masterpiece of a film. Um, yeah, there's so much to go into. I can't wait to talk about it myself. So here we go. Let's kick it all off with our first time viewings. Uh, it's it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not a uh, for me, it was a VHS rental after seeing Escape from LA. I've, I've mentioned it a couple times on the show in the past. I saw Escape from LA first, um, and after. You know, you were there for that back in, you know, I think you were the one who got me the VHS for my birthday. I'd never seen it before. And then we all watched it that night and <laughs> had a good laugh at the, the effects and everything. But the, the, the more I've watched it over the years, like, and I know it's inevitable we'll do an episode on it down the road. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a defender of LA. But then I had to go see New York because I felt, I don't know, I, I just felt like I was doing something wrong to only, having only seen LA but never New York so like I said I rented it it was definitely VHS this was prior to DVD probably like 97 98 and I remember initially not liking this movie and as a matter of fact it took me a good while probably wasn't until Scream Factory put out the Blu-ray about 10 years ago and I watched it then that I grew an appreciation for this movie now, I know people are like, you liked L.A., but you didn't like New York. Like, that's it's not that at all. I never said L.A. was a great film or a perfect movie. Um, it's definitely had its flaws, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's because of the fact that I saw L.A. first that I just didn't. I don't want to say I had a disdain for this movie, but like, look, I was young and dumb. And as we, you know, grow older and, and, and get older and watch more movies as, as cinephiles that we are, like, you know, our opinions change. It's just, uh, it's a damn shame it took so long for me to come on to this movie or come around to it, but, uh, here I am. I fucking love it. So, yeah, that was my first time. It's kind of funny. Uh, mine's pretty similar. So I actually watched this for the first time right before Escape from L.A. uh, was released, and it was on a movie channel, so it was on either, like, HBO or Showtime or whatever it was on. And basically, they were running a big, uh, you know, making of and behind the scenes uh, for Escape from L.A. And I just happened to click it on and they were just talking about how they did the different sets and Mm -hmm. uh, just interviewing the actors and all that. And then I wasn't like it wasn't like a plan or anything. I was going to watch Escape from New York right then. But I'm watching like the behind the scenes. I was interested in the movie. I was like, yeah, I still got to see Escape from New York. I've been wanting to watch that. And then they're like, up next, the uh, original classic, Escape from New York. And I was like, oh, okay. well, I know what I'm doing for the next hour and a half. So, uh, you know, I just stayed in my room and watched it on cable that night for the first time. So, yeah, I was definitely uh, late on it. Like you said, I mean, it was what? When did uh, L.A. come out? 96, 97, something like that. Summer on 96, it came out. Yeah. So uh, that. You know, I was a little bit uh, older when I first watched it. Um, you know, because it was just so funny because I had seen so many other John Carpenter films at that point. 
Uh, but right. New York was just one that always eluded me. I mean, I knew about it. I was interested in it. It was just one I just never got around to watching. But uh, yeah, the first time uh, on cable and I loved it instantly. I it, it benefited from the fact that I was watching it in my room with my old like 19 inch tube TV. So it looked a lot better <laughs> then than it does right. now. I definitely noticed it's budget a lot more nowadays. But back then, I mean, I was just like, I love the exploitation. I mean, at that point, I'd already seen Assault on uh, Precinct 13, and I was a big fan of that film. Uh, that was one of Carpenter's earliest films and uh, lowest budget. But His second it, movie. Yeah, second movie. So, it, you know, it has a lot of uh, ties, just not obviously plot-wise or um, actors-wise, but just, you know, it's made by the same guy, and it's just got that low-budget 70s exploitation feel. So I was just signed up for more as soon as I started watching Escape or yeah i had a great time uh that night it was just like such a cool surprise to watch it all right story time tell me a story wait like my story no not your story a story since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper tell me a story i don't think i know any stories you don't know any stories no all right i'll tell you a story this is a newspaper right it's 90 percent bullshit but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. Uh, we talked about this pretty recently on the episode, on an episode of Furycast, but felt it was appropriate to also mention it and talk about it here. And that is regarding the recent news of a third film from Radio Silence with Carpenter executive producing, which is the norm for John these days. He just gets to sit back and get paid while all of his films either develop remakes or sequels. It's quite the job to have. And sometimes he'll do his music, you know, he'll, he'll contribute the music at least. But most of, the, most of the time, he's just getting that EP credit and collecting money and just saying, thank you, come again. Um... So yeah, for those of you who don't know, Radio Silence, the team behind the recent Scream films, and as well as, um, uh, what was that film that they were known for, uh, Ready or Not, that came out about four or five years ago or so, or it wasn't that long ago, it was a few years ago at least, the, um, it, it was just confirmed a few weeks ago, uh, they're tapped to direct it, write it, Carpenter's doing the producing of course, and then... As of the article that I read a few weeks ago, nothing's been confirmed about Kurt Russell, but they're going to get him, is what was said in, in the article. Like, they're going for him. So I'm, I'd imagine they're going to make uh, make Kurt Russell a pretty happy offer, and I can't see why he wouldn't do it. I, I mean, he's always been on record, and I'll talk about that coming up, like, how this is his favorite role. And he was pretty adamant in getting L.A. off the ground. Um... So I, I just can't imagine him saying no to this. So hopefully, you know, with with uh, a little luck, Kurt Russell will come back. And this third film will be in the bag in the next year or two, I'd imagine. Because they got Scream 6 coming out in March. They'll probably go behind the camera on this in the spring. I can't imagine them waiting too much longer. Um, I don't know. I, I, I We'll probably know a lot more about it this release come a year from now but as of this point I'm saying it'll probably be a summer 2024 film if, if I were to guess right here right now put a gun to my head but uh, yeah I, I I would like to see a third film especially like an aged Pliskin uh, yeah. where are you at on this idea Corey 
Yeah, I mean, I really hope it's a sequel. Uh, I don't know what's confirmed or what's not, but it's I really... a sequel. If they're going the sequel route, not a remake. It's a sequel. Yeah, I hope it's not a reboot or a, whatever they call it, a soft reboot or whatever. You know, it, I just can't imagine anybody else as Snake Plissken. So even an older Kurt Russell, which I mean, you know, I, have you seen the guy recently? He looks great for his age. So I think he can still pull off does. the Plissken look and still be badass. You know, I'm not saying you can't throw like a younger action star in there. Um, the, well, a lot of people are saying like Wyatt Russell, his son, who looks just like him, could step in and play Snake. But again, uh, you, you still got yeah. Kurt Russell. He still got it. I mean, he's still in the Fast and Furious movies doing his thing as Mr. Nobody. So, you know, he, he you know, the hair's going to be a little bit, I'll have, to, I'll have to see how it looks with long hair these days as, as you know, 25 years ago was the last time we saw him. So who knows? Or maybe yeah. Snake Plissken cut his hair in the meantime. Maybe he has like, I don't know, like, like a little mullet slash faux hawk thing going on. I, who knows? I don't know. I'm speculating right now. So yeah, I just hope it's a direct sequel and we get uh, Kurt Russell back as uh, Pliskin is the main star. Uh, you know, normally I don't care that much when stuff gets rebooted, and I'm sure they could reboot it and get somebody in the uh, role, and it might be fine. But I don't know; it's just such an iconic role tied with Kurt Russell. I just have a hard time thinking about it, and you have him right there, so it's just to me, it's a no-brainer. Just do a sequel, like the the movie. Uh, the whole theme of the first two movies, it ties in so well. Uh, you know, it's just such still timely commentary. So I think it'd be very easy to do another sequel and uh, do it well. So, yeah, I'm excited. You know, I'm optimistic for it. Right on. All right. Well, before we get into the film plot and breakdown and all that jazz, let's do live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. All right, top five films featuring a main character racing against the clock. Honorable mentions for me, I got three of them. The Running Man, Crank, and DOA. And I'm referring to the 1988 remake version with Dennis Quaid and um, Daniel Stern. Um, little underrated film. Um... Like I said, it came out in the late 80s. Used to be on Showtime a hell of a lot. So that's why I saw it. But those three films are my honorable mentions. And my number five, Three O'Clock High. That's a movie that takes me back every time I watch it. Because that was another one that used to be on, um, I think that was a Cinemax movie growing up. Um, but yeah, you got uh, Casey, uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Um Simon, I don't know, I can't pronounce it. It's it's a Polish name. It's long. But um, he's like this geek who accidentally starts a fight with uh, Richard Tyson. has like this boy character. And he gives him till 3 o'clock to meet him outside at the flagpole. You know how shit goes. And then the whole movie just takes place throughout the entire school day with him just anticipating, not anticipating, but like him, the events that occur leading up to this 3 o'clock fight. And hence the name, 3 o'clock high. But, uh, you ever seen that movie before, Corey? 
Yeah, I've seen it, but it's been a long time. But yeah, I, I remember bits and pieces about it, about like, you know, I'll see it at 3 o'clock. Yeah. I'll tell you I what, Shout, Shout Factory put out a pretty good edition of it a handful of years ago. Uh, that's how I saw it recently. But, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, uh, Casey Simazko. <laughs> that's that's uh, the name. I probably butchered the last name. That's how it's pronounced in my world. But yeah, three o'clock cars with number five. How about you? My number five, I've actually talked about it before. Uh, it's one of my favorite Johnny Depp performances, actually, and that's Nick of Time. Uh, I just love uh, Nick of Time. It's just like an under-the-radar movie. I mean, I remember it came out. Like, not a lot of people talked about it. Uh, you know, it wasn't like a big hit, but I always appreciated it just because Johnny Depp plays a normal character. <laughs> you know, this is uh, pre-Jack Sparrow days and all his other crazy shit. He just <laughs> right, plays like a right. normal a normal guy, a normal dad stuck in a bad situation. Christopher Walken is the main bad guy. So how do you not love that? Um, and I just Charles like the S. Back- Dutton, the shoeshine guy. Yeah, yeah, he's missing a leg. Charles S. Dutton. Uh, you know, I just love the whole premise of the movie. Like he, uh, Johnny Depp's forced into uh, assassinating this uh, politician. And I just love the fact that the movie's all in real time. Like uh, pretty much, you know, from the time... Uh, he's first uh, propositioned about um, doing the assassination. It's all real time. It's all like within whatever it is, 98 minutes. And uh, yeah, you just go on such a journey with him in that time. And it's all set in one contained area. And it's just so interesting. It's Uh, a wild ride. Yeah, it's a good ride. And I, I, like I said, I love Depp in the movie. So yeah, Nick of Time, easily uh, one of the first ones that popped into my head. All right. My number four is Armageddon. We've talked about Armageddon for a lengthy period of time. Got a previous episode on it. Check it <laughs> out. Um, yeah, it was part of Bayhem Month back in May. So we talked a lot about that movie. I love it. You love it. Check that mo- Check that episode out. But my number four is Armageddon. Yeah, so my number four is, was actually one of your honorable mentions, and that's Crank. I fucking love Crank. <laughs> I love that's one of my favorite state the movies. It's so uh, ridiculous. I love the fact Dwight Yoakam is thrown in there. Like I, I anything with Dwight Yoakam, I'm instantly uh, intrigued by. Uh, but I love the whole premise of him just hooking himself up to a car battery, having sex uh, in public at like a racetrack. Like it's just so crazy and so over the top. And I uh, love the dark ending as well. Um, you know, there was a sequel. I, I, I saw the sequel. I remember it was okay, but uh, I remember the first crank was just so awesome state them doing drugs like just such a cool premise of him you know getting this uh weird drug that he's got to keep his heart rate up just such a great idea and uh executed very well uh yeah just a fun movie to watch all right number three for me is nick of time all right everything you just said goes double for me great film underrated and uh yeah probably the last normal death performance now that i think about it uh, so yeah, number three is Nick of Time. How about you? <laughs> yeah, so my number three has to be Armageddon. <laughs> like you said, previous yeah. episode. Um, you know, when you talk about racing against time, you know, they only have a couple weeks to formulate their plan and save the world. Uh, you know, it, it's one of my favorite, like, disaster porn type movies. Uh, so yeah, go back and check out the, uh, episode from the Bayhem month. That was a fun episode. Yeah, it was. All right, my number two is Escape from New York. We're about to talk about it, so have patience. 
Yep, same here. My number two, Escape from New York. Uh, you know, for all the reasons we're going to talk about soon. Classic. Ooh, makes me curious to know what your number one is. My number one, 1917. I fucking love 1917. I went and saw that movie a few years ago when it came out in the theater. I actually went through it. I went down to the Senator Theater, uh, which is big theater here in Baltimore. Um, it's this was prior. This was right after the remodel was done. They added like a bunch of smaller theaters because it used to be one giant theater, and then they did some renovations to it and added a few more theaters. Uh, so obviously they can show more movies. And um, for everyone listening, I don't know if you're familiar with John Waters. He did a film called uh, 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 oh, which one is it that I'm thinking of right now? It just it just literally lost me. All right, it just left my head. Cecil B. Demented. Um, there's a big scene that takes place in the movie theater. That was the theater I saw in 1917. I, I went by myself, was just in all the entire two, two and a half hours it was on. And uh, I've watched the film a handful of times since. And every time I watch it, I'm just like, this movie's just, they don't make them like this. They really don't. I think there's something unique about it. Yeah, the whole single take aspect, you know, it's... It's tricky because um, like there's some movies that this doesn't it it's not it this doesn't feel right but this feels right for the format. Love the way Sam Mendes and company pulled it all off and uh, yeah I can't say enough good things about 1917. Yeah I'm surprised uh, this one didn't make your list but my number one is Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, you know like that that's one that I just guess- popped into my head. Like I wouldn't I don't know I guess you I didn't even think about that being a race against the clock. I mean, it kind of is like, he's like, you got to get yeah. out there get the street sign up. You got to get to the train station in time. You got to get to I mean, Yankee stadium in time. One big game of Simon says, I know. I didn't even yeah. think about that shit. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's artificial. Like, you know, McLean's not, uh, you know, it's like, he's not going to die if he doesn't show up to one of those places, but other people will. But and bad things happen. I know. Yeah. Bad things happen. And obviously Simon is just doing all this as a distraction or, um, rob all the gold out of um where is it again i don't know it's in new york or whatever but uh <laughs> to rob all the gold out of uh um all the banks so yeah i mean i know it's like a distraction yeah, down wall street yeah and wall street i know it's all a distraction you know simon says just a great thief but yeah they're against the clock the whole time him and sam jackson i love uh die with a vengeance yeah uh, you're right shit <laughs> <laughs> so that's my number one um in another timeline, that's my number one as well because I love the Hot with the Vengeance. It's my favorite one of the of the series. So, all right then. Well then, let's uh let's get into this film, shall we? Here we go. All right. So, Kurt Russell. Like I said before, he's said this was his favorite role, all of his films. This is his favorite character. Um, in fact, he had a lot of input in the character itself, like the trademark eye patch. That was his idea. Like he wanted to spruce it up a little bit and do something just what felt like him. So like he just wanted to make a natural badass character. So um, it works for me. I mean, like you said before, like his 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 look is just iconic. He's got that badass trench coat, you know, the eye patch, the long hair, 
He's got just this smug attitude. Like, overall, this just works. I'm not sure where the inspiration itself came from, but kudos to whomever it may be because, like, this... I've always loved this Kurt Russell character. Like, he's my favorite Kurt Russell character, and uh, it just... Everything about him just stands out to me. And, like, when you think of all the action characters and, you know, there's so many of them, he stands out. Yeah. Yeah, just, like, the way he delivers lines, like, just with that quiet, cool tone... Because, like, he, he he seems tough and cool, but he's also quiet. And, you know, you also get the impression he's a lot smarter than people probably give him credit for. You know, a dude with, like, an eye patch and, uh, you know, his military right. trench coat get up. Like, he's definitely a smart guy, like, that sees the different angles of what's going on and what's happening. So, yeah, it's just, like, everything just works. Like, I even love, like, his, the equipment. Like, just, like, his gun and... Uh, his tracker yeah. and all the cool stuff he gets at the beginning is cool too. It's all part of the character to me. It's awesome. Um, you know, after all the praise we just gave him, though, would you trust him in a real life situation? I think I would trust him. Uh, like as far as like if we hadn't had any other meetings, like I I think he seems like a fairly straightforward guy. If you haven't wronged him and you're honest with him. So, yeah, I mean, it would be tough because I'd be like, I don't know. This guy seems maybe a little shifty, but I think I could. I think Snake Plissken isn't a bad guy. He's just anti-government, anti-establishment. Right, uh, right. That's where a lot of it comes into. But he's not like a terrible guy. You know, he's like an anti-hero. Not out necessarily just to hurt people or uh, screw people over. You know, he's just in bad situations and, you know, he's just kind of throws up his middle finger to the government and all the people in power. Yeah, I guess it depends on the situation that we're in, because I'm not sure if I could trust him or not if I was in a situation where, like, I encountered him, whatever the, you know, occurrence may be. I just, I don't know if I could trust that guy, like, from the look to like, the way he is, because sometimes he's just the kind of the guy that would be like, he'll tell you whatever you want to hear, and then when it comes time for him to, you know, return the favor or whatever it may be, like... He would just be like, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention something. I lied or something like that. I don't know. It, 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 it I, like I said, it depends on the situation for me. That's my answer. So Carpenter originally wrote the screenplay for the film in 1976 in the aftermath of Nixon's Watergate scandal. Carpenter said the whole feeling of the nation was one of real cynicisms uh, about the president. Uh, he wrote it in this. He wrote the screenplay, but no studio wanted it. Because according to him, it was too violent, too scary, and too weird. He had been inspired by the film Death Wish, obviously, which was very popular at the time. He didn't agree with the film's philosophy, but liked how it conveyed the sense of New York as a kind of jungle. And I wanted to make a science fiction film along these lines. So Avco Embassy wanted, uh, well, they didn't want Kurt Russell, I'll tell you that much. Their list of actors to play Snake included Charles Bronson, obviously. Nick Nolte or Tommy Lee Jones, who wasn't really a season action star at the time. Like Tommy Lee Jones in 1980 is not the Tommy Lee Jones he is today. He isn't. He hadn't reached that legendary status. And in fact, I'd argue Tommy Lee Jones didn't hit like peak popularity until the 90s with The Fugitive. Is there anything I'm missing? 
Corey? I, I can't think of the top, off the top of my head, but the fact that they wanted Tommy Lee Jones to play Snake Plissken at one point, just, I don't know, kind of baffled by that, if it's even true. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've had, it, I mean, it's, as far as the, authentic, the authenticity, I've, I've got numerous sources that stated his name, so I have no reason but to believe that that was one of the list of actors that they, Avco wanted. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could see him doing it, you know, especially young Tommy Lee Jones, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm surprised by that too. Maybe there was like just a, an executive that just really liked him <laughs> from one of his early performances. I'm not sure. But yeah, like Charles Broad said, like, he's obviously a badass, but it's like a different type of badass. I don't know. I just don't see him going in on like a covert mission. And, you know, Nick Nolte, I mean, I don't know. I guess all the guys could pull it off. But, yeah, I'm a little surprised uh, they wouldn't want Kurt Russell. I mean, he just has that look down, that delivery, like I said. It's just hard for me to imagine anybody else. Yeah, looking at Tommy Lee Jones, he did have some big films in the 70s. But, I don't know, they weren't really roles that would warrant action. Like, he did Rolling Thunder. Okay, there's one. But he also did, you know, he was known for his first film, Love Story, in 1970. And then, of course, in 1980, uh, around this time, he did The Coal Miner's Daughter. But again, these aren't like heavy-duty action roles, except for the one I mentioned. Other than that, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I, I don't feel like he was a big enough star. Not that Kurt Russell was, by any means, but I don't know. It's just weird. Of all the actors they could have went with, they picked Tommy Lee Jones as one of their potentials. So... Carpenter, of course, had Kurt Russell in mind, who was trying to overcome the lightweight screen image conveyed by his roles in in several Disney comedies. So basically, Russell was trying to shake off that Disney image at the time that uh, this film was in the production or in the making. Uh, Carpenter refused to cast Bronson on the grounds that he was too old and because he worried that he could lose directorial control over the film with an experienced actor. At the time, Russell described this character as a mercenary and his style of fighting is a combination of Bruce Lee, the Exterminator, and Darth Vader, with Eastwood's vocalness. All that matters to Snake, according to the actor, is the next 60 seconds. Living for exactly that next minute is all there is. Russell used the rigorous diet and exercise program to develop a lean and muscular build. He also endeavored to stay in the character in between takes and throughout the shooting as we welcomed the opportunity to get away from the Disney comedies he had done previously. Even though the eye patch was idea, it was his idea, he did find it necessary to remove it in between takes, as wearing it constantly seriously affected his death perception. Um, so yeah, he was basically staying in character with the exception of the eye patch. Um, and we hear about this all the time. Is this, this whole staying in character in between shoots is nothing new. Nothing groundbreaking, so... You know, I'd expect nothing less from Kurt. Uh, Carpenter just made uh, the film Dark Star, but no one wanted to hire him as a director, so he assumed he would make it in Hollywood as a screenwriter. Uh, he went on to do another. He he went on to do other films with the intention of making Escape later. After the success of Halloween, Avco Embassy signed Deborah Hill and him to a two-year uh, a two-picture deal. First film. We talked about this on our Fog episode. Was the Fog? Initially, the second film he was gonna do was a was um the, the Philadelphia Experiment. 
but because of scriptwriting problems, Carpenter rejected it in favor of this. However, Carpenter felt something was missing and recalls, this was basically a straight action film, and at one point, I realized it really doesn't have this kind of crazy humor that people from New York would expect to see. So we brought in Nick Castle, a friend from his film school days at Southern Universe at the University of Southern California, who was also Michael Myers in the original 1978 film. Castle was the one who invented the cabbie character, who was played by Orgus Borgnine, and also came up with the film's ending. So yeah, that's why this is credited. Normally, Carpenter is credited for you know writer, director, and 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 uh, producer, but this specific film, he was co-writer with Nick Castle. Um, aka Michael Myers, who went on to direct a bunch of movies. Uh, The Last Starfighter, he directed Major Pain, he directed um, uh, Dennis the Menace. We've talked <laughs> about, we talked about this, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the film setting proved to be a potential problem for Carpenter, who needed to create a decaying, semi destroyed version of New York City on a shoestring budget. The film's production designer, Joe Alves, and he rejected shooting on location in NYC because it would be too hard to make it look like a destroyed city. Carpenter suggested shooting on a movie back lot, but Alves nixed that idea because the the texture of a real street is not like a back lot. They sent Barry Bernardi, their location manager, who was also the associate producer, quote-unquote, on a sort of all-expense-paid trip across the country looking for the worst city in America. This is what uh, Deborah Hill said. Bernardi suggested East St. Louis, Illinois, because it was filled with old buildings that exist in New York and that have that seedy rundown quality. And so the team was looking for East St. Louis, Missouri, had entire neighborhoods burnt out in 1976 during a massive urban fire. Hill said in an interview, block after block was burnt out rubble. In some places, there was absolutely nothing so that you could see three or four blocks away. Also, Alves film he found an old bridge to serve as the 69th Street Bridge. Uh, the filmmaker purchased the old chain of rocks bridge for one dollar from the government and then gave it back to them for the same amount once production was completed, so that they wouldn't have any liability. So I'm sorry, they, they ended up shooting this in St. Louis after the the, the the neighborhood burnt the neighborhood fires from 1976. Because it had the burnt down look, obviously nothing was rebuilt. Um, it was still decrepit looking from what happened several years prior. And the bridge also resembled, like I said, the 69th Street Bridge in New York. So in order to shoot on it, you know, to get permits and everything, he literally just bought the bridge from the city for a dollar, shot it, and then after they were done, sold it back to him for a dollar kind of genius not gonna lie <laughs> um also in st louis they used union station and the fox theater who both that have since been renovated as well as the building that would eventually become the schlafly tap room microbrewery so the production design apart uh, i'm sorry the production design department would get their props by taking several dump trucks to the la- local landfills and filling them up with junk, like broken refrigerators and car shells. So they're just taking these, like, fucking dump trucks and going down the the, the, dump, the literally the, the dump, and picking up, you know, just whatever they could find to throw in the streets to make it look even more just beat up. 
Carpenter's crew pursued, they persuaded the city to shut off the, le the electricity for uh, 10 blocks at a time at night. The film was shot from August to November 1980. It was a tough and demanding shoot for the filmmaker, as he recalls. We'd finished shooting at about 6 a.m. and I'd just be going to sleep at 7 when the sun would be coming up. I'd wake up around 5 or 6 p.m. depending on whether or not we had dailies. And by the time I was I, I got going, the sun would be setting. So for about two and a half months, I never saw daylight, which was really strange. In addition to shooting on location in St. Louis, Carpenter shot parts of the film in L.A. Various interior shots were shot on a soundstage. The final scenes were shot at the... Sepulveda Dam in Sherman Oaks, New York, as well as uh, uh, Atlanta, to use their more futuristic-looking rapid transit system. The latter scenes were cut from the final film. In New York City, Carpenter persuaded officials to grant access to Liberty Island. We were the first film company in history allowed to shoot on Liberty Island at the Statue of Liberty at night. They let us have the whole island to ourselves. We were lucky. It wasn't easy to get that initial permission. They'd have a bombing three months earlier and were worried about trouble. So Dean Cundy, famous DP from pretty much every fucking uh, Carpenter film from Halloween to The Fog to this, to The Thing, so on and so forth. He'd go on to join uh, Spielberg and, and Zemeckis for the Back to the Future films and then Spielberg later on for uh, Jurassic Park. So he used a special lens, which was new at the time, to extract the, the uh, maximum amount of light from nighttime shoots. That's why you got this dark feel from the movie, because of the, the lens he was using. It was pretty state-of-the-art at the time. And, you know, this is nothing new, because back in 78, when they shot Halloween, they had the Steadicam, and that was pretty new at the time. So, you know, hats off the Carpenter and Dean Cundy for just trying all these new cameras and shit like they were ahead of their time with these movies i'm telling you um carpenter was interested in creating two distinct looks for the movie one is the police state high-tech lots of neon u.s dominated by underground computers that was easy to shoot compared to the manhattan island prison sequences which had few lights mainly torch lights like uh full new england uh, certain matte paintings were rendered by james cameron Yes, that James Cameron, who at the time was a special effects artist with Roger Corman's New World Pictures. Cameron was one of the directors of photography on the film. As Snake pilots the glider into the city, three screens on his control panel display wireframe animations of the landing target on the World Trade Center and surrounding buildings. Carpenter wanted high-tech computer graphics, which were very expensive, even for such a simple animation. The effects crew filmed the miniature model set of New York City they used for other night for other scenes under blacklight with reflective tape placed along every edge of the model buildings. Only the tape is visible and appears to be a three-dimensional wireframe animation. It's pretty smart. The entire crew was plagued by persistent mosquitoes during a very hot and sticky St. Louis summer. Kurt Russell kept all of his costumes from the film and was very pleased 17 years later. When escape from the when escape from L.A. was made because he was still able to fit into the costume. Although ultimately, both he and Carpenter decided to change the costume for the sequel, he could still fit in that original OG New York costume. The original negative was considered lost, but was later found by the current owner of the film, MGM. It was subsequently used to create new elements for the special edition DVD, 
and then later the Blu-ray, and more recently, Shout Factory, Scream Factory acquired it to do the 4K transfer from the negative. Um, and my last note here was what you brought, what you mentioned, Corey. Snake Plissken being, you know, inspired by Snake from Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty. And, uh, so yeah, pretty much nothing to add to that. You pretty much had a spot on with that. So yeah, that was a lot to take in. So basically, this was a pain in the ass of a shoot. Um, although they got creative with their limited budget. So, um, it works. And you can definitely see that lens, you know, especially on these newer transfers because it's fucking dark. But you can make stuff out. So it's not like... It's not like that episode of Game of Thrones we were all bitching about a few years ago when it was just so dark you couldn't see anything happening. You had to turn the brightness up on your TVs. Nothing like that. You still you can still render things. But um, it's definitely a dark movie. So um, talk about the film itself. Opening credits. That's how the film begins. Pretty simple. But that theme. Oh my god. If we were to sit here and do a top five John Carpenter themes... This would be my number two. Halloween will always be my original, you know, favorite. It's the Halloween theme. It's iconic. It's nothing's ever going to beat that. Yeah. But this yeah, is a close contender. Out. I love yeah. this theme. Yeah, it, it's really good. That It's just another thing Carpenter adds to the mix. You know, this could have easily just been your generic type uh, music from the late 70s. Like, you know, something like Dawn of the Dead, like Romero's movie comes to mind, like where the music. I mean, it's not, like, god-awful, but it's definitely not a highlight. Like, it's not something I necessarily uh, would listen to or uh, think back to a lot. But, yeah, Carpenter's score is just that 80s synth. Uh, it's just so awesome. Like, just all his movies are great in that respect. So just another thing that uh, he brings to the table in the movie. I mean, no joke, I'll listen to this from time to time, like... His anthology record, I'll put that on while I'm driving, and like, this will be like one of my go-to tracks. Is the Escape from New York theme? It's, it's, it's just so catchy, and it's, I, I just love it. I've always loved it, and I'm always gonna love it. So originally, this movie had an alternate opening. Have you ever watched the original opening for this movie? No, I don't think so. No? Okay. I'm just curious. Do you have the Scream Factory Blu-ray? No, no. I just got like a generic Blu-ray. Okay, that's why then. Because they were the ones who found it and had it included. So yeah, originally this movie, there's like a... It's like a 15-minute long opening. Maybe not that long. It's like 10 minutes at least. Um, And you basically see him and his partner get away and make a run for it on the train you see him get caught and his partner get gunned down um his partner is played by joe unger who would go on to be uh the sergeant in the original elm street he was one of uh john saxon's sergeants and then he was tanker in texas chainsaw massacre 3 who's like one of Leatherface's brothers. He's the guy with the hook hand, for those of you who are familiar with that movie. So yeah, that guy, Joe Unger, uh, would go on. He was also in Mask, uh, Roadhouse, 
uh, did voice work in Total Recall. But yeah, he was in the original uh, opening as Pliskin's partner, uh, Bill. But um, yeah, I'll never understand why the uh, the sequence was cut. Because unless they just wanted to keep Pliskin's, like, I don't know, maybe to add to the mystique, if that even makes sense. Like, I can't think of reasons why they would go and cut this, even for, if you're going to say for time, like, what time? This movie is a brisk 93 minutes long. You can definitely add this to the movie and it will still feel fine. Um, Eh, But yeah, you actually see him and his partner, you know, do the... uh, robbery and make the getaway through the train and and they get caught and like I said his partner gets gunned down and Snake gets locked up and then we cut the credits yeah but I'm yeah, okay I'm okay not seeing it honestly I I, I kind of like the fact that like you know Pliskin's kind of like a celebrity like you know everybody's like ah Pliskin I know him but you don't really know anything else about him I heard you were dead per se so I, I like that fact that you don't really see uh, anything you know, at the beginning of the movie, but I'm not, I, it wouldn't be like, you know, I wouldn't be unhappy if the movie opened and you saw it or anything, but I do think it kind of adds something like a little bit of mystery to it. Oh yeah. It's on YouTube. And it's also, like I said, on them screen factory, Blu-rays and 4k copies. Uh, so check it out. Um, anyway, so yeah, we, I mean, we talked about Cundy. We talked about Carpenter, Nick Castle. So anyway, it's 1988. The, crime rate increases by 400% then we're shown what was what happened to Manhattan Island 50 foot walls surrounds the island with no guards inside the prison the rules are simple once you go in you cannot come out and this voice work is done by Jamie Lee Curtis by the way if it sounds familiar it is in 1988 the crime rate in the United States rises 400% The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. The rules are simple. Once you go in, you don't come out. I know people have said that she also did voice work in Halloween 3, but sorry guys, it's not her in Halloween 3. Sounds just like her but it's not her. It was confirmed by her herself. Um, but this is her. And, you know, like I said, she's, you know, it's kind of a thank you for Carpenter, you know? I'm sure she did spent, like, two hours of her time recording this because it's just minimal voice work. But, yeah, this is Jamie Lee Curtis here. So we cut to 1997. We can see this raft of prisoners attempting to paddle away from Manhattan. Then they're eventually blown up by this police helicopter. Just to show you guys that you don't fuck with the police. You try to escape this island. You are going to die. Because they've turned this into a prison. The entire island. No guards. No rules. 
you're just stuck in there. We don't give a shit what you do once you're thrown in there. Just stay the hell away from us. We get this model set and that was uh, eventually repainted and reused for Blade Runner. And then we see Tom Atkins confirming the two attempting to escape were killed at the Liberty uh, uh, by the Liberty Island Security Control Center. We see, and then we see this bus arriving with Snake Plissken being brought in. No talking, no smoking. Follow the orange line. Oh, and the control center also gives convicts a convenient way out package with the option to be terminated <laughs> or cremated on the premises. Yeah, so I, you, just love, I just love that dark humor. Like, just like, ah, hey, you don't want to go in? Yeah, we'll, we'll take care of you. We got we got you. Just let your, uh, you know, sergeant or whoever know. It's like, <laughs> should you wish to follow through with that option, you just need to let the, one of the guards know and they'll have that arranged for you on the spot. So Snake's in the process of being taken to Manhattan when Lee Van Cleef's commissioner Bob Hawk stops him and there's a sudden fade to black. We'll come back to Snake momentarily. In the meantime, the president's about to be taken hostage. So the name Snake Plissken was actually taken from a real person. When writing the screenplay, Carpenter struggled over assigning a memorable name for his, you know, his main character. And a friend of a friend suggested using the name of someone he knew in high school who he described as sort of a tough guy who bore a large snake tattoo on his abs. His last name was Pliskin and went by the nickname Snake. Said Carpenter, anybody with a snake tattooed on them someplace, that's my kind of hero. <laughs> so we've got Nancy Stevens from Halloween acting as a suicide hijacker on Air Force One. She's flying the plane next to this random dead pilot delivering some rally speech about being an oppressed worker who's rallying against the leaders of the New World and then she crashes the plane into a Manhattan skyrise. Meanwhile, the president, played by Donald Pleasance of all people, handcuffs his briefcase to himself and then gets shot out of an escape pod before the plane crashes. Tell this to the workers when they ask where your leader went. We, the soldiers of the National Liberation Front of America, in the name of the workers and all the oppressed of this imperialist country, have struck a fatal blow to the racist police state. What better revolutionary example than to let the president perish in the inhuman dungeon of his own imperialist prison? The bosses of the racist... Unlock the pod. She's bolted the door. Can't you shoot off the lock? No, sir. She's pressurized the cabin. How about lifting the door off of the hinges? No, sir. So this is Nurse Chambers getting back with Loomis for not remembering who she was in Halloween 2. The Secret Service tells the president that she bolted the door and pressurized the cabin. And when he suggests taking the door off the hinges, they're like, nope, we're just going to shoot you <laughs> off in the air enemy territory in this janky emergency pod. Yeah, you can go in your presidential egg right now because that's, right. that's pretty much what it looks like. Your little red egg. So... Although appearing as the president, Donald Pleasance still retains his unmistakable British accent. According to John Carpenter, Pleasance, possibly feeling self-conscious about his accent, suggested the script include a backstory to explain that glaring constitutional fall pass. So uh, Car- Pleasance came up with the idea of the dystopian U.S. having rejoined the British Empire, in which case the president no longer needed to be a natural-born citizen. Carpenter thought the idea was interesting, but would be 
both distracting and unnecessary to the story, opting instead to simply not mention anything about the accent at all. So we're just going to kind of sweep it under the rug and hope no one turns a bl- everyone turns a blind eye and no one questions it. But yeah, I do like your idea. It's a little full. I'm just going to throw that out there, Pleasance. It's a little much, you know? Yeah. That's like a yeah. whole backstory that requires like 20 minutes to just brief you in on that. That's just, that's that that's going to take the movie to over two hours. I'm sorry. We can't do all that. Yeah, so it's, I mean. We're, instead, we're going to dumb down the audience and hope no one fucking notices. Like, good idea, Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it, it never bothered me. I mean, obviously, I knew Pleasance uh, has an accent. Uh, and you can obviously hear it, but it's, I mean, he's obviously a major he character. He makes no effort to hide it. No, he, he doesn't, but it, you know, it, he's the president. So it does add like, you know, any, to me, a lot of British accents does add a touch of class. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't necessarily have a problem, uh, believing that he would be like, you know, the ruling class essentially. And it's not like he has a ton, a ton of lines in the movie. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me that much about it. Like it never really, like as watching it. When I was younger, never stood out. I'm like, why is the British guy president? Like, I didn't really think about it that much. I think he's got the look down. So, so. are you one of those people that think British accents are like sophisticated? <laughs> Not all of them. Some of them aren't. I mean, I'll be honest. Some of the time, I can't even understand what uh, <laughs> the person's saying, depending on uh, where they're from in the UK. But I think Pleasance is. I, I think he definitely has. Yeah, you know, he comes off as like this. Uh, you know, cool, intelligent guy. So, yeah, I think it works in this context. Plus, he's a carpenter regular. He'll pretty much do anything. Right. <laughs> right. This, Halloween, Prince of Darkness. I mean, I'm thinking of just other films that he was in in the 80s. He's got, like, Alone in the Dark. He was also in, um... <clears throat> um what the hell is it? It's the Dario, Dario Argento film. With Jennifer Connelly. Tenebrae, I think it's what it's called, or something like that. He was also in that. So this egg-shaped pod couldn't be any more obvious to the enemy as it's this bright red concoction (laughs) with the President of the United States logo front and center on this thing. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but perhaps it's not the best idea to advertise your emergency escape pod as the President's. Like, because most likely that pod's being used in the area of terrorists. Like, I wouldn't want any enemy knowing where I was after getting away for the first time. But hey, that's just me. My name's Ed, and I host a stupid, po- I host a stupid movie podcast. Um, the president gets shot out of the plane just before the plane crashes and burns. Meanwhile, back at Liberty Island, Lee Van Cleef and his men take a chopper into Manhattan to retrieve the president. But when they get there, the sitting duck of an escape pod is found empty. And this is when we get Frank Doubleday making his first appearance as Romero, who's this wild-looking skinny punk with spiked hair and a pale zombie-like complex. You touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. You come back in, he dies. And the countdown begins. You touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. You come back in, he dies. Twenty seconds. I'm ready to talk. Nineteen. Eighteen. What do you want? Seventeen. Sixteen. 
Let's go. Let's go. Even though Van Cleef's ready to talk now, it's such a memorable moment. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that this scene inspired the Splatterpunks from Robocop 3. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a random thought of the moment, but that's that's just me. It's the truth. I've always resembled, like, I'm always like, hey, you resemble a Splatterpunk. Yeah, but, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting as he's talking to Van Cleef. You just hear your move, creep, and you just yeah. see Robocop blow him away. Like, just. <laughs> His fallen car comes from out of the sky, like in Robocop 3. Uh, no, this, this, this fucking scene's so memorable, because, like, he just stands there so still and calm. He's just like, you touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. Try to come back in, he's dead. Basically. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's blunt to the point. Van Cleef's like, I'm ready to talk now. He's like, doesn't even respond to it. He just keeps saying what he has to say. And they're like, he means business. He starts the countdown. They're like, get the fuck out of here. So, it's a great movement. Uh, yeah. Van Cleef can't, can't wait for any rescue plans to happen. He's got to act immediately. This is when we cut back to him calling Snake into his office. And he runs down a shopping list of charges bottle and Snake before cutting a deal with him in exchange for a full pardon. He tells him to go into Manhattan, get the president out within 24 hours for a, for, for a full pardon. A full presidential pardon, actually. Snake just wants to think about it, but he's not given that opportunity. And I like how he keeps telling Bob he's thinking about it during their conversations. Like, yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> so Lee Van Cleef flew in from L.A. for a one-night shoot and flew out the next day. When Carpenter watched the dailies, he discovered that some of Van Cleef's close-ups were out of focus. Carpenter was forced to use some of the close-ups in the movie since they can't they couldn't afford to get him back in. Van Cleef also suffered a knee injury prior to filming and wasn't fully recovered when it came time to film his scenes. His wife, Barbara Havlund, was on set to make sure the actor would get through his scenes. That sucks. I heard he had a really bad leg injury. This was all news to me, though. He filmed all of his scenes in one fucking night. Yeah. He's in, the, he's in this film for a lot, too. He's in it, yeah. like... This had to have been, like, one dedicated night to just leave Van Cleef scenes or Liberty Island cause like and maybe the one scene where he's actually in Manhattan when he encounters Romero other than that you think back on this movie all of his scenes are pretty much in the same location so I guess it does make sense and like they were able to do it successfully yeah but I mean, he is I sprinkled in there yeah yeah like he, I, I couldn't tell that anything was out of focus though nothing really occurred to me as out of, out of focus watching it yeah so, um, so yeah, all dressed up. No, I'm sorry. Snake. First, he's brought up the speed by Atkins and Van Cleef, as well as uh, giving an array of weapons as he's being briefed on the mission. They tell him he'll be entering the island on a stealth glider where he'll be landing on top of the World Trade Center. So all dressed up and ready to go. He's now given 22 hours till the end of the peace summit. He was en route to the president, me and he. Then, um, this white coat lab guy, Dr. Cronenberg is his name. Yes, he's named after that, David Cronenberg. He injects him in the jugular with a capsule bomb, and then immediately the guy's like, tell him. Strong antitoxin stops bacteria and viral growth for 24 hours. Take off your jacket. I'll be all right. 
Let's go, Fusco. I don't like needles. Twenty-two hours, fifty-nine minutes, fifty-seven seconds. We talked about twenty-four. In twenty-two hours, the Hartford summit meeting will be over. China and the Soviet Union will go back home. Now, the president was on his way to the summit when his plane went down. He has a briefcase attached to his wrist. The tape recording inside has to reach Hartford in twenty-two hours. What's on it? You know anything about nuclear fusion? The survival of the human race, Pliskin. Something you don't give a shit about. I'm going to inject you. Let's sting for a second or two. That's it, Pliskin. Tell me. Tell me what? That idea you had about turning the Gulf fire around 180 degrees and flying off to Canada. What did you do to me, asshole? My idea, Pliskin. Something we've been fooling around with. Two microscopic capsules lodged in your arteries. They're already starting to dissolve. In 22 hours, the cores will completely dissolve. Inside the cores are a heat-sensing charge. Not a large explosive, about the size of a pinhead. Just big enough to open up both your arteries. I'd say you'd be dead in 10 or 15 seconds. Come out now. They're protected by the cores. 15 minutes before the last hour's up, we can neutralize the charge with X-rays. We'll burn out the charges if you have the president. What if I'm a little late? No more Hartford Summit, and no more Snake Pliskin. He couldn't tell him himself before shooting Snake in each side of the neck, Boondock Saint style. He just hits him in the jugular, and he's like, "Okay, tell him." <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, "Tell well, me what?" He's like, "You got a bomb in your fucking system now. Once it dissolves, it goes boom." Yeah, I'm just surprised uh, Pliskin would even let him inject them with anything to be completely honest with you he's so calm about it, it too because even rewatching, i had to rewind it because i'm like wait did they even tell him what they're doing to him first he just sits up on the fucking table and just gets shot in the neck he just lets him do it he takes his crazy i take your coat off it asks no questions it's kind of unsnake like if you ask me um so a plane pulls jake's jake's snakes glider into the air as he flies into manhattan and lands on his target at the corner of the edge tower. So, this has never made sense to me. And maybe I'm just overthinking, underthinking, not even thinking that a glider would be able to fly across the river and gain the altitude to land on top of the World Trade Center. Yeah, yeah, because basically, like, he's like low and then flies up, which it's like if they shoot him up in the air like a boomerang, they shoot him up like a fucking, like a boomerang or, or a, or a, whatever slingshot that's what i was looking for they shoot him up there like slingshot style by using a plane because again this is a glider and i don't know like i know it's like i mean it's got to be at least a mile across that river just alone to get into manhattan 
the Hudson River, and then you gotta like gain all that altitude to get on top of the tower. Like it's just I don't know. Movie's gonna movie in this case. Yeah, um, but I, I I love the whole glider. It's just so like cool. It's like, a fun sequence. Black, black glider. It's got like the '80s, uh, like you mentioned before, like the wireframe. Uh, just look down on the city. It's just so tense. And then, like, landing on the World Trade Center. I mean, I'd be scared shitless, like, landing on top of a building like that. Like, it's just so crazy. But, you know, it, when I was younger, it didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, why is he landing on the top of a tall building? But, you know, as you think about it, it's like there's fucking debris everywhere. Like, where else are you going to land? And also, you're trying to be low-key. Although, I would think, you know, maybe there'd be more people on the World Trade Center kind of as, as like a lookout since it's so high up. Like, I don't know if it would necessarily be deserted like that. You know, either way, it's a cool sequence with the glider landing. Which do you prefer, this or LA's entrance into uh, the city? Because I know, uh, no. like, cause, cause I like LA, he's LA, he's got that rocket boat concoction that like goes through the water and he like goes past the... Universal Studios Hollywood sign and like dodges like this shark comes up and that like they literally had a shark come up and, like, and he avoids getting chomped and shit like I remember stupid shit like that from Escape from LA yeah now I would take New York I, I think it's just so badass and cool on the glider like on a stealth mission they're both fun but I prefer New York uh so yeah snake twists and wires together makes a couple sparks and gains access inside of the World Trade Center Almost immediately after checking in with Van Cleef, he spots shadows running around. So Snake leaves the building and enters the fire-infested streets of Manhattan. So we see the wreckage of Air Force One as Snake confirms on his radio that no one else made it out alive. He gets a signal on the tracker that they, they, they gave him to help him find the president. So uh, Snake enters an old rundown theater where there's a show happening on stage. It's like this group of, you know, men dressed in drag performing. Everyone's coming to New York. This is when we first see Borg Nine's cabbie character. He's sitting there watching, like, all happy and shit like he is. So <laughs> I know, he's, like, bobbing his head the whole time. He's, he's, man, he loves this fucking performance. I'll tell you that. Um, the president's pl- down plane was an old Convair 580 brought from an airplane graveyard in Tucson, Arizona. The plane was carved up into three separate pieces and trucked into the the St. Louis locations in the dead of the night as they didn't have the uh, proper paperwork for it, so they had to sneak it in. Uh, Snake passed through when he he spotted by Er Ernest Borgnine. Like I said, he was watching the show, kind of spots Snake, so he goes after him. And uh, he's warned that he doesn't want to go where his head... So Snake continues walking deeper into the building anyway, passing fires, punks, and bums before he finds George Buck Flower. Being George Buck Flower, his bum character from every Carpenter movie and beyond, wearing the president's bracelet, the tracker. So Snake then radios back that he's, he wants out. President's as good as dead, but no <laughs> can the, do. I love when he radios back and you got like the, uh, the pump singing hail to the chief. He's yeah, just like making up yeah. words. Like it's just so funny. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's great. And like I said, Bug Flower here. Dude, Bug Flower, we've talked about him on the show before, but I can never yeah. stop talking about that guy. He's he's great and everything he's in. I mean, it's funny too, last month when we were camping, me and Brian watched Waxwork and Waxwork 2. I completely forgot he plays the deadbeat father in Waxwork 2 in the opening scene. He gets fucking destroyed by this hand. It's great to check it out. 
So anyway, um, oh yeah, in his scene from Wishmaster, because who isn't in Wishmaster? But he's like, how would you like him to die? Referring to the the the, the pharmacist played by uh, Reggie Bannister, and he's just sitting there smoking his cigarette, and he goes, cancer, <laughs> fuck him. So anyway, um, yeah, Snake finds the empty red pod, and then takes a seat right right beside it. He's relaxing. He's tired. Does the same thing in L.A. too. Only to be lured away. Then forced into hiding by running gang members who keep coming out of manholes and subway stairs. He hides out in a corner chock full of nuts shop where he encounters <laughs> a woman who's also hiding out. So yeah. Um, this is Season Hubley, his wife at the time. Who had just given birth to their son, Boston. Um, yeah, the, the girl in the chock full of nuts. That was her credited role. Um, and yeah, I, I gotta give credit to Carpenter's decision to make the score here as faint and non-existent as possible, while still delivering eerie sounds that go with the quiet score. It, this is a great concocted scene, and the manhole covers, they were all made out of, out of wood, because obviously we had people running out into the streets. But yeah, this the, the, everything about this scene works for me too. It's it's eerie, it's creepy, it's like snakes running at first, and then he's he's running away from, and then he just goes into hiding, and he runs into this woman who's also in hiding, and they immediately make out, but she says that she thought he was dead, which is the running gag in this movie. Um... As fast as they have time to get to know each other, she's suddenly pulled into a hole that a group of maniacs burst in from and she gets killed. <laughs> yeah, that kind of surprised me the first time I watched it. I thought she was going to be like a main character and then yeah. boom, gone. You a cop? No. You got a gun? You got a smoke? Keep your hand over it. It's all right if we're quiet, they won't hear us. Hey, this is a real one. You just get in? What's going on out there? Crazies. End of the month, they're out of food. You live here? Skulls? Are you kidding? I'm with the Turks now. I just got caught on the street after dark, and I'm stuck here all night. Plane crashed seven hours ago near 8th Avenue. Did you see it? No. Shit. You're a cop. I'm an asshole. Hey, wait a minute. I know who you are. Yeah, but I heard you were dead. Wow, Snake Pliskin, all right. What you doing in here with a gun, Snake? Looking for somebody. Who? The president. Come on. You really here? Somewhere. When you find him, you're going to take him out? Mm-hmm. Take me out with you, Snake. Why? I can think of lots of reasons why. Ladies and 
we don't even get to fucking hear her say her name or whatever. She just gets yanked down and killed off screen. So Snake Boogies once more. Now, the gag here, I heard you were dead. Every time someone says that, that character eventually dies by the end of the movie. Just didn't know if you recognize that or not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Snake jumps into or- Ernest Borgnine's cab, and Borgnine is just so ecstatic and happy to have Snake Plissken in his cab. He's even glowing when he's at, with his smile as he lights up this random Molotov cocktail and tosses it at these people. Yeah. <laughs> he's just happy. He's like, here he you go. He is so happy. He really does make this movie even better. Where you going, buddy? Neighborhood snake. You don't want to be walking from the Bowery to 42nd Street at night. Ha, I've been driving a cab here for 30 years, and I'm telling you, you don't walk around here at night. <laughs> yes, sir. He'll kill you and strip you in 10 seconds flat. Usually, I'm not done around here myself, but I wanted to catch that show. This stuff is like gold around here, you know. It's like gold. <laughs> Hey, Snake, when'd you get in? I didn't even know they caught you. <laughs> oh, Snake Bliskin in my cab? <laughs> Wait till I tell Eddie. <laughs> hey, hang on, Snake. <laughs> hey, uh, what were you doing back there, Snake? Looking for somebody. Well, why didn't you ask me? Hell, I know everybody in this town. Yes, sir. I've been driving this cab for 30 years. This very same cab. I'm gonna ask you. Now, where's the president? Uh, the Duke got him. Everybody knows the Duke's got him. Or you don't have to put a gun to my head, I'll tell you. Who's the Duke? The Duke? The Duke of New York, eh? Number one, the big man, that's who. That's real good. I want to meet this Duke. You can't meet the Duke. Are you crazy? Nobody gets to meet the Duke. You meet him once and then you're dead. He's a character actor I've always, just always, always loved. Always, always, always. He's just so happy and innocent, but is sort of against type in this particular role a little bit. He's got an edge I've never seen him have before in a film. Yeah, and and I mean, it's just so funny, like, his character, because... He's just happy because he's got his car. Like, he just loves his old cab, and he loves New York. Dude, and, cabby you know, in his cab. Yeah, who cares if it's a uh, prison shithole? Like, he's still driving around, so he's happy. Yep. The snake makes him see, uh, takes him to, he makes Cabby take him to go see the Duke. Instead, he takes Snake to see Brain, who is one of the Duke's advisors, as well as former associate of Snake's. This is when Adrian Barbro graces us with her beautiful and badass presence. She opens up the door and lets them in. And the I heard you were dead running guy continues as she takes Snake to see her boyfriend. Two are reintroduced and Snake immediately remembers Brain, leaving him in Fresno Bob back in Kansas City. Snake draws his gun on Brain and forces him to take him to him. He then offers Brain a ride out of Manhattan with him, but nothing's working. Brain smells the bullshit. So, Brian, I like this thing here. Snake keeps calling Brain Harold. It keeps, keeps pissing. It just pisses him off. Um, Brain here, Harry Dean Stan, originally was supposed to be Warren Oates. 
Warren Oates was the one who recommended Stanton instead for the part. Later on that year, Oates passed away, unfortunately. Premature heart attack. Um, Adrian Barbeau was the wife of Carpenter at the time of this. That's how she got the role. And, um, yeah, Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, between this and Repo Man, like, he's just an alien. Like, he was on a roll, man. He was on a roll. Oh, yeah. And he, he never stopped. Like, Harry Dean Stanton, even up until his recent unfortunate passing, like, he was just in so many movies. Like, he would just pop up in the most random shit. Like, Alpha Dog, he popped up in that. And I'm like, hey, it's Harry Dean Stanton. And, like, everything. Like, I was, and, and Red Dawn, another one during this time that I watched just recently again. Um, another one of my favorite character actors like this movie's just jam-packed full of just great character actors some of my favorites are all together in one movie another reason why i love this film so much i guess yeah um, yeah I, I i love harry dean stan he he's great in the role too because like obviously he's a really smart guy but he's also he's a schmuck like, yeah, he's a like, schmuck and he plays that character type so well always has yeah, like he he's shifty. Like obviously he you know plays whatever side he thinks is gonna work out for him, and like you said, he's kind of a schmuck and kind of you know he, he, I don't want to say he's kind of I guess like a man child almost because you know you got Adrian Barbo is kind of like his caretaker essentially, and I love yeah. that dynamic too. Like she's like watches over him and basically is like his muscle almost. <laughs> you know what a weird dynamic though. You know yeah. Um. Anyway. Boys, avenge me! Sorry, I love Red Dawn. Uh, so Snake drives Brains reinforced station wagon through a mob of gang members, running them all over and shooting anyone who tries to reach inside at Snake. He reaches a dead end made up of stacked cars and turns around before putting it in reverse. He crashes through that fucking thing, blocks the gang. It's kind of a badass thing to do. It gets the guys away from running towards him and. Gets them out of there. Easy way out, I, I like to, to call it. I uh, forgot to mention before, uh, Kurt Russell's stunt double, Dick Warlock. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. Hell yeah. Love Dick Warlock. Uh, they spot Duke in his parade heading back to his outlet. The plan is for Brain to stall him while Snake goes and grabs the president. So they head to their destination as Brain and Maggie try getting inside to meet the Duke. But one of the guards they encounter is given strict orders not to let anyone inside. So meanwhile, Snake throws a knife in the head of a guard, watches the president, frees him, tells the president to act fast. So I always thought he gets the president out and I'm like, damn, that was quick. <laughs> like, you know, this all happened so fucking fast. And then, but it's short lived because, you know, they, they escape and then the Duke, his men grab them both. And the Duke himself knocks out Snake. Even the Duke heard he was dead. Snake wakes up shirtless at dawn. Meanwhile, back at Liberty Island, they're arguing about sending in another rescue team in place of Snake because they think Snake's not going to make it. So Duke's target practice scene with a scarred and beaten president is, is uh, happening at this point. And, dude, you are the Duke of New York. You are A number one. <laughs> like one of my favorite lines in this movie. It's like all scared and shit and beat up. What did I teach you? You are Duke of New York. You're a hey number one. I can't hear you. 
You belong to the Duke of New York. You're a number one. Give me the diagram. Duke, don't kill Pliskin. We need him. Get moving, brain. target practice you are the duke new york it's little, i love the way pleasant's act scared um this is so jumpy and on edge like i i guess i don't blame him he's been pretty much beaten and shit and that that briefcase is good as gone we'll find out later on what happened to it duke wants that diagram so he sends brain back to get it from him and uh the briefcase cuffed to the president's open with just a cassette tape falling out which romero retrieves like i said he's gonna have this Pleasant, Pleasant drew on his own wartime experiences as a prisoner of war for his performance in this scene here. So just tampered back from fainted memories or uh, or tragic memories. So meanwhile, we've got this couple flyover choppers doing infrared flying through Manhattan. And a gang waves them down so they land and retrieve the president's uncuffed briefcase left for him. Inside contains a note that says, Amnesty for all prisoners in NYC in exchange for president tomorrow at noon. No bullshit or he's dead. As well as Snake's tracker, but no tape. So of course they they, they think that Snake has switched sides. They send in choppers of their own. Amnesty for all prisoners in New York City in exchange for president. 69th Street Bridge tomorrow, 12 noon. No bullshit or he's dead. Where's the tape? Not here. They're Pliskins. So much for your man, Hulk. Warm up the choppers, we're moving in. But we also get that brain plans on taking the glider out of Manhattan along with Maggie. Um, that's also a thing happening. Meanwhile, Snake's forced to fight the Duke's champion, Slag. Or Slog. No, Slag. <laughs> In a fight to the death, this barbaric, mang the merciless looking motherfucker who's played by former wrestler Ox, I love the Hurt People Baker here, he struck Russell so much, like some of these blows were legit because uh, he's just a fucking wrestler, didn't know any better, I guess he couldn't hold back his punches good enough. Uh, Russell had finally had enough and he asked Baker to take it easy, tapping him in the groin to let him know he was serious. Um... Baker then calmed down, of course. He would. That's not a place that you want to be hit. This was all filmed at the Grand Hall at St. Louis Union Station. Kurt Russell said, That day was a nightmare. All I did was swing a spike bat at that guy and get swung down in return. He <laughs> uh, threw a trash can in my face about five times. I could have wound up in pretty bad shape. But you weren't. <clears throat> so Maggie and Brain free the president who's wearing this hilarious blonde wig. That was <laughs> it kind of works for him. I, I kind of wish he would have kept it on. Well, that was Pleasant's <laughs> idea. He he was the one that was like, I want to wear a blonde wig just because. And they kill Romero and the rest of the guards. And then after this happens, we see Snake kill Slag with a blow to the back of the head with a spiked bat. And as this happens, someone yells out that the president's gone. And... Snake's got an hour of time left. He runs up to the top of the World Trade Center tower and finds his escape glider that just at the right moment being cut down by gang members and it falls to the ground. <laughs> He's like, so much for that shit. So Way much go, for Jesus. that. 
The series also reunited here with Brain, Maggie, and the President. It demands they use Brain's car. Snake wants that tape, but it's gone. Although Brain swears he knows of its whereabouts and tells him to take him to his car and he'll take him to the tape. So the Duke eventually finds everyone together and is about to kill everyone when Snake quickly draws his gun, shoots off a steamer next to the Duke, and escapes with everybody else. Every, uh, Cabby comes at this moment. He returns to the film, picks up everybody, reveals he had it. He bartered with Romero for the for unbeknownst to everyone. He's got the tape. The tape is revealed to contain information about nuclear fusion intended to be an international peace offering for the World Peace Summit. Uh, the Duke pursues the group on the Queensboro Bridge where they hit a mine that was set off by the Duke. This is unfortunately the end of the line for Cabby. Exit stage left, Mr. Borgnine, as he's revealed to have been killed during the crash slash explosion. So the group continued to cross the foot of the bridge by foot, and this is a badass scene. This is when Brain steps on a mine, he's killed, and then Maggie, she's got nothing left to lose, so she sacrifices herself so that Snake and the President can cross the bridge alive. Dude, her fucking death scene, heroic, but goddamn, is it brutal? Yeah, like, it's pretty brutal, but just, you know, I know it's like a small little thing, but Barbo does such a good job, like, just uh, j- just the way she acts and emotes when Brain's gone, like, you can tell she's just like, oh, I got nothing to live for now, you know, like, Brain, you know, you don't know if they were, like, uh, a romantic item or if it was, like, a, um, well, they like a caretaker that. relationship. And but- the, her her, her uh, reaction to his death pretty much seals the deal and confirms that they were an item. Yeah. Like, she does, you know, in that brief moment, we do see her, like, you know, react and, and mourn him, and it's, it's it, I buy it, and it's believable, and it, it, it's at that moment you realize, or at least I did, that, like, they were kind of two peas in a pod together, Brain and Maggie, because they're pretty much, you know, we, you see them together throughout the entire movie, like, they're never really apart. So it's tragic when she loses him in this moment, and she's like, I got nothing left to lose. You guys go. I'm going to stay here and take the brunt of this. I'm going to die. There's no doubt about it. And die she does. Holy shit, dude. This is brutal. Like, this fucking car knocks her the fuck down. Yeah. And then we get this shot of her corpse underneath underneath the car that was actually added after principal photography was done. Carpenter felt the audience wouldn't get it as she had been killed by the impact. Carpenter and Adrian Barbo filmed the shot in their garage with her under their own car, because again, they were married. During a 2011 interview with Terry Gross on her national public radio program, Fresh Air, J.J. Abrams said that as a teenager, he was the one who had first suggested to Carpenter that Maggie's death was unclear. Abrams, whose father was a movie producer, got to see an early rough cut of the movie and when Carpenter asked the small screening audience for notes and suggestions, the then 15-year-old Abrams told him that there needed to be an extra shot of Maggie that established that she was definitely dead. Now, I yes, this this kind of adds up. His dad was a producer at the time. Um, you know, it... Uh, yeah, Gerald Abrams was his father, who was a big producer at the time. Many TV movies from the mid-70s onward. Um, so I guess it makes sense. It, it, things do check out for this this little bit of trivia. Um, I don't know. 
He's just got a punchable face. Fuck him. So Snake gets the president to the end of the bridge where they climb the wall together as the Duke arrives on foot, begins firing at them with the, 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 the M60 or whatever it is that Snake's gun. Kills some guards before he and Snake have a short-lived fight that ends with the president shooting the Duke to death. Shoots him <laughs> to fucking death and he's like, You're the Duke! You're number one! Yeah, I, I love uh, how Pleasance gets his revenge right here. He's like, yeah. hey, you wear a fucking wig. I'll show you. <laughs> That's great. So on the other side, Snake hands Van Cleef the return of the tape, and a return has the bomb deactivated right at the nick of time. Meanwhile, the president's already been given a clean shave, and his wounds tended to as he's minutes from going on the air with the nation. Like, I love this shit. Like, he literally, like, just got saved. They just made it over the fucking bridge together. And they've, they're already pampering him. They're like, get this man a shave in a hot towel now. So, uh, Snake asks him how he feels about everyone who died rescuing him. And he's kind of cold with his response. Not really showing much of regret. Or he instead feeds Snake some bullshit about their sacrifice. I, uh, I want to thank you. Anything you want, you, you just name it. Just a moment of your time. Three minutes, sir. Uh, yes? We did get you out. A lot of people died in the process. I just wondered how you felt about it. Well, I... <clears throat> I want to thank them. Uh, this nation appreciates their sacrifice. Look, um, uh, I'm on the air in uh, two and a half minutes. Yes, sir. Basically showing little sympathy towards the fallen. So Snake walks away in disgust. Van Cleef offers him a job as his deputy, which doesn't face Pliskin one bit for once. Van Cleef calls him Snake, but Snake tells him to call him Pliskin and then goes off. Uh, we get this live speech from the president commencing and he plays the cassette tape and what is it on that tape it's cabby's favorite song bandstand boogie you're on camera mr president good evening although i shall not be present at this uh, historic summit meeting i present this in the hope that our great nations may learn to live in peace. Uh, Pleasant's really just he just looks down at the player without any real look on his face. He just stares down like, I give up. I've been through enough and can't even form an expression over this fuckery <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, He's just it, done. It's funny. Yeah, it, it's hilarious. Just He's just like, oh, well, there went world peace. It's like, thanks, Pliskin. Yep. <laughs> All this was for nothing. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, Snake continues walking off, smoking his cigarette and destroying the real tape as the Escape from New York theme song kicks in and we get our end credits. And that, my friends, is Escape from New York from 1981. Director John Carpenter, producer Deborah Hill, and co-writer Nick Castle. Starring Nick, I don't know why I'm doing this. Yeah, all right. Well, like we always do, let's move on to some categories. Kicking it all off with box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. All right, I got some numbers. Film was released on July 10th, 1981 from Avgo Embassy Pictures. Had a total gross of $25.2 million against a $7 million budget. Now, this was, in fact, the largest budget that Carpenter had worked with up to this point. It would only get larger after this movie. I think his film that... I think he followed this up with Christine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, that's pretty successful. Hence, Paramount saying, sure, we'll pick up the rights so you can make this sequel. Um... And whoever's doing the sequel now, it, you know, it just, I, I'm not sure how much LA made. In fact, I think LA has been known to be a big box office bomb, but this is a good modest budget. I mean, a, a good modest, uh, um, and gross, whatever, whatever, whatever have you. So yeah, we can move on to, uh, what the critics thought about it. Critics corner. <laughs> And uh, the film's got a Rotten Tomato score of 86% based off of 66 reviews with a consensus that says featuring an atmospherical, grimy, futuristic metropolis. Escape from New York is a strange, entertaining jumble of thrilling action and oddball weirdness. It's got a meta score of 76 out of 100 based on 12 12 reviews. Um, And yeah, no cinema score. Eves gave it two and a half stars and said John Carpenter's Escape from New York is a cross between three of the most reliable ingredients in pop fantasy. One, the president is missing. Two, New York is a jungle. And three, the anti-hero as Time Bomb. Carpenter has gone after an original angle on each of the ingredients with disappointing results. The president, for example, would be much more convincing if he was not played as a sniveling wimp by Donald Pleasance of all people. The movie's New York of 1997 would have been more interesting if it were seen as a genuinely different prison society rather than a recycled version of the Warriors. Makes a good point. And the anti-hero needs more human qualities and quirks. He seems lifted from an old spaghetti western. Um, And that was all quotes from uh, Eves, by the way, not me. Vincent Camby from the New York Times gave it 3.5 out of 5 and said the film is not to be analyzed too solemnly, though. It's a rough, it's, it's a rough, I'm sorry. It's a toughly told, very tall tale. One of the best escape and escapist movies of the season. Dave Kerr from the Chicago Tribune said it's a rare film that has so many ideas and yet fails so consistently to make them, to make use of them. Ed Gonzalez from Slant Magazine gave a three and a half out of four and said the oppressive power of Carpenter's scope 
Scope framing is matched only by his ability to speak to contemporary affairs. And finally, James Berardinelli gave this film two and a half out of four and said when the final credits roll, you can be forgiven a vague sense of dissatisfaction because the creativity that went into formulating the premise was never intended to the script writing stage. So we got this and that overall, even though it's got an 86% um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it does feel like the the top critics for that pretty much have a ho-hum opinion of this movie. But overall, it's called a classic. There's no denying that. So I guess what I'm getting at is it doesn't fucking matter what they think of the film. The movie has a voice of its own that people have heard over the years. And it is a bona fide classic. There's not really much I can say on that that I haven't already said throughout this episode so far. So that being said, let's talk about what you and I thought in the form of pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Pros. Coy, why don't you go first? I haven't heard you speak for a minute. Yeah. What are your pros? Yeah, so uh, obviously, uh, my first pro is the cast. I mean, just top to bottom. Like, it, oh, it elevates yeah. this movie so much. Like, you know, th- it would be very easy for this movie just to sink into uh, just a cheesy late 70s, early 80s exploitation type action movie, but just the cast, just great. I mean, obviously, Kurt Russell at the top, but all the supporting characters, everybody's great. Um, yeah, I mean, just. We already mentioned everybody, but yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Adrian Barbo, get a special uh, shout out. Isaac Hayes, I, I love him as the villain. I think he's great as the Duke. I kind of wish you got a little bit more, honestly. Yeah, uh, he's grown on me. He, I was always underwhelmed by his character, but he definitely has grown on me over the last decade of watching this movie. Yeah, there's just like so many oddball characters thrown in there that just add like a little bit more flavor, a little bit more spice. So yeah, the cast is definitely uh, my number one strong suit. Uh, my next pro has to be the music. I mean, how can you not talk about a Carpenter film without talking about just that cl- uh, classic 80s uh, synth vibe? Uh, I just love it. It just sounds great. You know, it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but uh, it just takes me back to that time period. And, and it's just done so well. I mean, there's plenty of, uh, you know, 70s or 80s movies where I'm listening to the music and I'm just like, oh God, it's like, bothering me or it's just grating on me but carpenter always just has a way of composing it It just sounds awesome and it just sounds so catchy Um, also shout out to uh alan howarth because he also did the the music with carpenter actually this was the first movie that he and carpenter did the music together with because he would go on to be his partner with uh halloween 2 he would actually go on to score halloween 4 by himself but I know he scored with Carpenter, like Prince of Darkness, Big Trouble in Little China, stuff like that. So this was the first of many films that they did together. So it wasn't all Carpenter, but everything you said spot on now. Yeah. Um, and then my last pro is just I just love like the dark sense of humor and just the commentary thrown in there. You know, like we were just talking about the yep. ending. I just love Donald Pleasant standing there with this stupid song playing. And you just see Snake Plissken like basically just ruin world peace Rip because the he didn't tape apart. Yeah, he didn't like uh, Donald Pleasant's answer earlier. So he's like, fuck this. It just starts ripping the tape up. Uh, you know, I just love stuff like that. Just 
like just the little sprinkles of dark stuff. Like we mentioned at the beginning when you have the option of getting killed before you go into the prison. <laughs> just just stuff like that. It, it it would be very easy for it to be over the top and make you groan or it would just be easy for the movie to be too straightforward and boring. You know, so I just everything works like even the raft at the beginning. It's not really funny, but it's just good commentary, like, you know, about uh, immigration and um, different topics like that. And then you got him getting blown yeah. out of the sky. You got 10 seconds to turn around and these poor guys just get blown <laughs> out of the water. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just think the film has a little bit more to it than just like your bare bones uh, exploitation type movie. And I think that just adds it. So, yeah, those are the pros for me. All right, for me, yeah, I got a handful. Um, starting with the fun plot. Like I said at the top of the episode, it plays out like a video game, and it's just fun to watch. It's a, I love watching it all play out. Uh, like you said, the cast, I mean, it's a great cast full of genre royalty. Um, the movie itself is a breeze to watch. So, you know, the editing is just, it's, it's paced very well. Uh, very well paced, and like I said, it's a breeze to watch. It's fun to watch. Just it all goes together so well. Uh, you mentioned the music. I'm gonna go ahead and mention the cinematography from Dean Cundey. I mean, any opportunity I get to talk about Dean Cundey on here, I'm gonna, because he's one of my top five favorite ever um, in that field of work. So in, in this movie, you know, like I said before, like he was always ahead of the game when it came to like shooting stuff, like Halloween. You know, he he graced the arts of the uh, Steadicam. And in this movie, it's that, that lens he used for that dark vibe that we that the film is given. It, um, it just works. And the movie itself has tons of replay value. You know, that all goes in to the fun plot and uh, the breeze of a watch that it is. It all goes together like a big stew. Uh, it's just the replay value in this movie is just up there with the rest of them. Um... It's one of my favorites. So yeah, those are my pros. What are your cons? Um, my top con for the movie, uh, and it's more so nowadays than it was back when I first watched it, but it, the movie does feel a little cheap, uh, especially watching it on like a high def uh, screen now. Like a lot of it looks good, uh, but some of the stuff, especially at the beginning, yeah, it looks a little cheap. I mean, it's not anything... I don't think it would ruin the movie for anybody. I, you know, and, unless you're very, very particular about certain things. But, you know, and just watching it, you can definitely tell it's just a low budget film. I just wish, you know, maybe you just had a little bit more uh, production budget, just a little bit more for the special effects, especially at the beginning. Um, but, you know, that that's a relatively minor thing. And honestly, when I was younger, I didn't even notice it so much. It's just more so now watching it. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that. That looks, you know, eh, it looks okay. Huh. Interesting. I watched it in 4K and I really didn't think it felt or looked that cheap, but, uh, eh, it, nah, man, everyone's different. No, 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 no. Eh. everyone's different. You know, that's, that's kind of like a, um, subjective opinion, but you're right. I guess. I mean, there are films that are, I, I definitely see that the others don't. So, okay. I'll give you that. Yeah. You good? I mean, it's just like certain genres just lend themselves better. Like Halloween, you know, obviously is made on a shoestring budget, but you don't really see that because uh, just the setting and the way it is. Escape from New York. I mean, that's that's a pretty big concept. And, you know, obviously, I think they pulled it off extremely well. Uh, but, yeah, there's definitely a few spots. Like I said, uh, the uh, 
budget kind of shows. And then I guess my other con would be, uh, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I, I just wish we got a little bit more Isaac Hayes as the Duke. I just wish he was a little set up a little bit more, a little bit more intimidating to kind of make it um, better for the final showdown at the end. Uh, Cause I like Isaac Hayes in the role. I think it's good. I, and he's pretty badass in the scenes he's in. I even love like his car with the fucking chandeliers on the outside. I mean, that's just so cool. It's like one of the things I always remember about the movie. Uh, but, you know, maybe just an extra scene or two with him just to kind of set him up as more of a badass and more of a um, bad dude. You know, I kind of wish it was a little bit more of that. But other than that, I mean, no major cons for me. All right. Um, I got a couple. Uh, needs more Duke. And I've always felt the film is missing something. And I think it's more action from Snake overall. Like, um, there's just something about, the, yeah, it's action packed, but there's, it's, I don't know. Like, I just felt like the movie could, could use like one or two more action scenes. Like, it just felt like there was more action than there actually was. Um, I know that's a weird one and it might sound like I'm reaching, but it definitely made sense when I wrote it down the other day when I was watching this because it's like something that came to my mind after not long after the credits were rolling. I'm like, you know, the movie does have its fair share of action sequences, memorable ones at that. But overall, when you pull back a little bit and see the bigger picture, I just felt that the movie was kind of missing one or two that, that definitely could have been used because, you know, it's like I said earlier, talking about the plot, like it just does, it feels like he achieves his goals so fast and the rest of the film's just getting the fuck out of New York rather than him trying to get to the president. He does get the president pretty quickly. Uh, and even though he's, you know, taken hostage after that, he doesn't, it takes no time for him to escape and get back on the streets trying to get out of New York with the president in hand. So, I don't know. Teach their own. Uh, just maybe... I don't know. That, that, that's Those are my only two cons, though. So, that's a good thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, let's move on then to Modern Cancellations. Someone just got cancelled. Someone just got cancelled. Someone just got cancelled. I wonder what they did. And uh, this was a tough one, but I went I went ahead and picked Brain. He's just someone who can't be trusted, always siding with whomever can benefit with him from, you know, whatever whoever can benefit him the most, he'll side with. He's just a snake, and I don't know. People can see through that kind of bullshit, and I just feel like he'd be exposed almost immediately by anybody who has a sense. So that's who I'm throwing in my little list of people who would be canceled by today's standards. How about you? Curious to hear. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I almost want to cancel uh, Donald Pleasance as a president just because that wig was <laughs> working. He's British? Yeah, no, not because he's British. Just because like that wig was working so well. I think he could work it into <laughs> his modern politics. <laughs> You know, yeah, like I, I think, I think the blonde look could really work. It's for the him. new me. <laughs> it kind of looks like, uh, kind of looks like Uncle Fester and Adam's Family Values when he puts that fucking blonde wig thing on for his wife. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I, wearing, the, wearing the white suit. You know, he doesn't embrace the look, so I think maybe, maybe there's some picture snap. Maybe he gets canceled because of that. Like he's not embracing it, <laughs> his true self right. here, Donald Pleasant. It really works <laughs> for you, the wig. <laughs> That's funny. 
Alright, well then, on a more serious note, we'll go ahead and move on to Mulligan Moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Um, yeah. This, the, the, the slag versus snake fight doesn't work for me. It's the most underwhelming scene of the movie. Um, so, you know, this is, it just, I guess what I'm getting at is that could be changed to something else. I don't know. They got created with LA. They made him do that fucking basketball game within, what was it like? He had to get score 10 shots within like five minutes back and forth or something like that. I forgot what it was, but something more along the lines of that. Just get creative with your, your, your task. Not a fucking cliche fight to the death with your cliche bodybuilder or professional wrestler. They're going to get their death handed to them on a silver platter because they're just big, dumb, and slow. So, I don't know. That, that's that's mine. I, I, yeah, it's This was a tough one as well because a lot about this movie works and I, I wouldn't really change much to it. This, this movie's just, you know... I wouldn't want to step on on Carpenter's toes with this movie, so I guess that's what I'm saying. Is to you know that change it to something else. He gets captured, you know. We're gonna give you an opportunity to uh, be free. Don't give it a fucking make. Don't make it a fight. That's just that's boring. Yeah. Now, I mean, I like that scene overall, but yeah, it's a little lackluster. I I think. Part of it goes into kind of what my con was earlier too. It's just the movie's low budget. I don't think they had the money to like really like just have a choreographer go through certain things. You know, I think it was just like bare bones as far as the fighting. And, right. and that leads me into my Mulligan moment. And like, so you have the bridge scene, which is awesome. I love the whole bridge sequence. But at the end, to me, it's a little underwhelming when uh, Snake and Duke finally start to fight. I mean, basically, like, they just kind of punch each other, roll on the ground a little bit. Uh, you know, Snake gets the better of them. And then I, I love that Donald Pleasant's, you know, the president gets uh, his revenge. Like, I love that whole part. I'm cool with him killing <laughs> the Duke. Like, that's pretty You awesome. are the Duke. You are A number one. But, it, you know, I would have kind of, like, Snake to do a little bit more before that, you know? like Right. And, and I know, like, the movie's portraying, like, obviously... You know, Snake is a badass, like he does a lot of cool stuff, but he's also kind of lucky in spots as well. But I don't know. I kind of feel like it's like the final showdown between him and the Duke. I wish there was just a little bit more there uh, with them fighting on the ground before Pleasance, you know, guns him down at the end. Uh, so that would be mine, but, you know, relatively uh, minor. You know, this isn't the type of movie where you're going to get like crazy fight scene, you know, so it is what it is. That's just par for the course for this type of movie from this time period. All right, well, that's things that we would change. Now let's go talk about our favorite moments. Finger looking good. Finger looking good. Uh, this was another tough one for me personally because this movie just flows together so well and I don't really have a moment that stands out. Well, yes, I do. But it, it, it's it's the bridge at the end, the Queensboro Bridge sequence, the finale Barbara's heroic death scene. Like, that's what I think about probably the most when I reflect on this movie is, you know, that whole sequence at the end on the bridge. Um, and everything from, you know, the, the, the mine that 
blows Stanton away to uh, Barbara, Maggie, her death, um, and her brutal death, like we talked about before. Jesus Christ, I'm still reflecting on that. Um, and then everything from yeah, the comeuppance from the president. You are a number one. You are the Dukes. Uh, that that the bridge has always been my favorite scene. It's been my go-to scene whenever I think about this movie. I always think about that sequence. So, how about you? Uh, this was pretty easy for me. I love the whole setup and Snake getting into the city. Um, I, I love everything down to, you know, when they're first establishing the base and, you know, you see Snake arrive. Uh, I love when uh, mm-hmm. Snake is having the meeting and thinking about the whole proposal and he's just sitting there smoking <laughs> at the guy's office. Thinking he, about it. Yeah, thinking about it, even though, like, you know, there's signs on the wall, no smoking. You know, he's just like such a Oh, badass. yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, like he's just such a badass right there. I love when they get like his equipment. Like I, I love you see like the cool looking guns and tracker and you know just his whole get up. Like just all that is set up so well. It's just to a T. You know the the injection. Like it's somebody could see it as cheesy, but I just love the whole setup. And then obviously, like we said, the glider with like the eighties uh, vector graphics and stuff like that. Just the whole setup of him getting and it is great to me you know there's certain other parts like we mentioned that kind of underwhelm me but all that setup works so well for me and just uh sets up the snake character and just the whole premise and i just love it i just love the whole beginning a section of him getting into new york all right then well if i thought picking out a favorite scene was hard it's not gonna get any easier for me because next up we've got like this try that And this might sound like a cop out of an answer. It's not Escape from L.A., it, which is practically a shot-for-shot shot remake. So, you know, because um, this movie's different. It's, it's you know, a, something. it's an original idea, yes. I mean, certain things have been done before. The whole ticking time bomb of, of, a, a, motive, uh, of a motive, I mean. Um... But the whole idea of New York City being turned into a fucking maximum security prison that you're basically left the one with no guards, no rules, total anarchy for the rest of your existence. Like, you know, it's kind of kind of a brilliant idea. Not going to lie. So now that I think about it, talking about this, like there's so many different things they could do for the third film that's upcoming, like escape from the uk or something like you can totally make you know europe or, or whatever a uh, maximum security island like you can do anything uh, <laughs> you can do anything if you push your mind do it but um yeah scary from LA is going to be my answer for this because it resembles everything that this movie is um just in a different city different coast we go from the east coast to the west coast so how about you core uh, I mean, mine's kind of an obvious one, too, but they just fit so well together. And that's the Warriors. I mean, obviously, they yeah. came out around the same yeah. time. Um, the Warriors really has the similar feel with like the city is a jungle. And, and you know, yeah. all the Warriors are out there uh, just trying to survive. Uh, you know, basically an escape from New York. Everybody's hunting for uh, Pliskin and trying to get the president. And the same thing with the Warriors. Everybody's hunting for the Warriors. 
So it just has that uh, late 70s, early 80s grindhouse uh, type vibe. Uh, you know, obviously the plots are different, but they they just go so well together for that time period and just that feeling of it all taking place in a night pretty much uh, in this jungle of a city. So, yeah, to me, those two just go together so well. I think if you like Escape from New York, I, I can't imagine there's too many scenarios where you wouldn't like the Warriors. All right, well, let's then move on to our movie MVPs. All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Kurt Russell. Absolutely iconic. That's Nate Pliskin. We've gloated about him throughout this entire episode for the last 120 minutes. Not really sure if there's much more I can really say that, you know, could really add to everything we've said. Um, everything from the look to the attitude to just his presence. It's just, it, everything works. He's my favorite. He's the best character in the movie. He's the iconic character, obviously. He is, of course, my answer. Snake Plissken. Yeah, I mean, obviously mine's the same. I mean, how can you not pick Kurt Russell? Uh, even people who haven't seen this movie uh, would know who Snake Plissken is. Like, uh, you know, I you can see-, see some people give it to Maggie, though. I can see where some people out there think feel that Maggie's character is a bit of an MVP runner. And I wouldn't doubt them. I wouldn't blame them for thinking that. That's actually a, a pretty good contender for Snake Plissken no, in this I'm, category. I mean, there, there's so many strong uh, characters. You can make an argument for Maggie. Yeah, they're, they're strong characters and actors, obviously, but I mean, it's just so cool, like so iconic. I mean, er- everything just works. The get up, um, like I said, all the equipment, just his line delivery. Like, yeah, I know uh, he might not be like a super deep character. I know it might be pulled straight from a Western, uh, like we heard in the critics corner. But I mean, Kurt Russell just pulls it off so well. It, it, it's hard for me to, uh, you know, ignore that. And, you know, like I said, it's yeah, he might not be the deepest, but he's a smarter guy than you think. I mean, I really do like to think if, uh, you know, at the end when Pliskin's asking the president and talking to him, I really do think if there's a scenario where maybe Pliskin changes his mind, doesn't switch the tape and destroy it, you know. So obviously he's a smarter dude than he gets credit for uh, and he moves his agenda for it. But yeah, how do you not pick Kurt Russell? I mean, just so iconic. My favorite role of his just so badass. All right. It's time. Time to give this movie the full final effect treatment. Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? All right, so I'll go first. Four stars. They definitely don't make them like this anymore. It's impossible to be bored watching Escape from New York. Such a fun viewing experience because of the way Carpenter made the movie. Everything from the Snake Plissken character to the way everything's written and planned out, to me at least, acts as a video game or at least a movie that levels out as our star main character makes his way through Manhattan to achieve his one goal when reaching the president. There's a good amount of memorable dialogue and moments in general that makes Escape from New York the classic that it is in my eyes today. I fucking love this movie. Four stars. Wouldn't have it any other way. How about you, Core? Yeah, I mean, my rating's going to be similar. Uh, Four stars. uh, Just an absolute classic. Uh, One of my favorite Carpenter films. Um, 
you know, it's just so strong conceptually. I just love the whole idea of an entire city just being a prison. Uh, like I said before, I love the Pliskin character and all the supporting characters. I, I mean, it's just so much fun. Like, it's just such a breeze to sit through. Uh, it just flows so well. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to have this complicated backstory. You get just enough to get in and get out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just great. I think it's Carpenter at his top uh, level. I think it's Kurt Russell at his top level and everybody else is on their A game. So how do you not appreciate it? Uh, you know, it's just one I've enjoyed uh, even since I was young. Um, I just love the time period and filmmaking and it just it just oozes that and i just love the pliskin character it's just so cool uh you know so i'm looking forward to the upcoming sequel i really hope they can pull something off great there but yeah this is an absolute classic if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this what are you doing get out there and get watch it uh just a great time and just such a awesome throwback yeah i hope you didn't spoil anything for anybody <laughs> <laughs> and on that note this episode is sponsored by chock full of nuts it's that heavenly coffee. And that's going to be a wrap on our Escape from New York episode, a film that 100% gets that full film effect seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-going collection of previous episodes on all major podcast platforms, and please be sure to follow us on all of our active social media platforms, more importantly, Twitter and Facebook, but we're also on Instagram and TikTok. We'd really love to hear your feedback on this episode or any of our previous episodes you may have recently heard. You can leave us a review or reading on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, leave us an email or wherever you're listening that allows you to do such wonderful things. Kick off your weekends with an all new Furycast episode now coming at you each and every Saturday. And of course, the Film Effect podcast every Tuesday morning on the main feed. Next up, we'll be turning that heat all the way up as Corey and I sit down to give Walter Hill's dangerous musical Streets of Fire the full Film Effect treatment. I'm a big Streets of Fire fan. I know this will be Corey's first time seeing the film, so I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on that as we break it down from top to bottom. But, uh, yeah. Any, 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 you, you ready for this movie? You ready for Streets of Fire? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you are, man. This movie's it's not your typical Walter Hill movie, but that's not a bad thing either. This movie's different. It's fun, just like this movie is. And uh, I think you're going to like it, dude. I think you're going to be taken back by how good it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to uh, give it a try. I mean, you know, I've seen, like, the cover with Defoe on it. I know it's a musical, so I don't have much more expectations other it's, than that. It's a musical, yeah, but there's not, like, it's it's not, like, Annie or something like that. Like, not every scene has, like, a fucking number. Like, there's probably, like, four or five songs throughout the movie. You know, there's, there's a lot of music playing, of course, in the background and, and through, throughout scenes, but, like, it's not like the characters stop and, you know, fucking do a, a number and shit like Clerks 2. It's not that kind of movie, so. Right. Well, either way, I'm excited. I, I'm intrigued. It's been one uh, that I've been meaning to watch, so, yeah, gives me an excuse. And I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking to you, of course, about it, because I'm curious to hear what you have to think about that. But uh, other than that, Corey, any last words before we depart? No, that's pretty much it. It was a fun episode. I'm glad we finally talked about it. And, uh, you know, just as a tease for a long way away, but I think this Cape from L.A. Uh, episode is going to be an interesting one when we do eventually cover that one. <laughs> I think it's going to be as well. So it's coming, just not anytime soon. All right, well, thank you all so much for listening to the show. We'll be back next week to talk about a rock and roll fable. Until then, everyone take care now.
Bye-bye. See you guys. I heard you were dead. I thought you were dead. I heard you were dead.